Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Elias Chapellis, James Scholes, and David Stokes from the Show Me Institute. Elias, we're a few weeks into the budget process. Um, currently, the action is in the Senate. Uh, things have to be decided there before the process can move forward. Where do we stand on deciding how to spend all this money? Sure. So the Senate Appropriation Committee finished up their work last week. Uh, they put together their plan that will be going to the floor for a vote. Um, essentially, what the Senate top lines are is they're spending about $3 billion more um, in total than the House. And then there is about $2 billion more in some bonding that they're trying to do. So some of the big uh, items, the differences from the House would be a further expansion of I-70. So the governor in the House wanted to expand I-70 uh, to three lanes in places that aren't three lanes in Kansas City, St. Louis, and Columbia. Uh, the Senate plan would expand three lanes, both directions, all the way across the state. And so that would be a nearly $3 billion project. So roughly uh, three times more than what the House and the governor was planning. The Senate also is looking at building a new psychiatric uh, hospital in Kansas City and then adding additional raises for personal care attendants in the Department of Mental Health. But the top line, a lot more spending, but this is still the um, opening, I would say, negotiation between the House. So what will happen next, the Senate will be voting on the budget. And then the differences between the House budget and the Senate budget, they'll uh, have to go sit at a table and iron things out there. But the big thing will probably be centered on I-70 funding. So one of the unique things that strikes me um, about funding for I-70 is that has to go through MoDOT. And I can't speak for other states, but I know at least in Missouri, there's a, a certain vibe around MoDOT and specifically oversight. So has that been an issue when discussing giving this department billions and billions of dollars um, past performance? How is it going to be uh, accounted for? And are people hesitant to, to write a check to MoDOT for that amount? Well, there's a lot of hesitancy. I, I think the legislature is currently suing MoDOT or the other way. There There is a lawsuit over accountability there where uh, MoDOT essentially contends that the legislature can't tell them how they can spend their money. Um, which is based off of uh, gas tax revenues and things like that. But what you're going to see, I think, with the next step of the budget discussion um, centered on this I-70 funding is whether the state feels or the legislature feels confident in allocating this $3 billion, um, you know, with uh, over a billion in bonding towards future plans with MoDOT without some confidence of accountability, which we may not really know how much can be there until this lawsuit is settled. So yeah, that seems like it's, um, I don't, there's just a couple weeks left in the session here. There's a lot of things as we'll talk about more, uh, in this podcast, there's a lot to, um, get done still. How do you feel about where this is in the process with just a couple weeks left? I don't feel very good about it. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, things here that, I think the legislature is kind of leaning towards just spend money now and try to figure out accountability later. And I think that's a risky place to be, especially when there's so much federal money floating around. I mean, we're looking at a budget that's about $50 billion when we were only in the mid 20 billion range just four years ago. So we're looking at spending so much more money and we're not sure about accountability. And I'm just worried they're going to get all this money out the door and, uh, you know, leave the rest of us to figure out <laughs> whether it was a good idea later. And there's 
there's no reason to believe that these revenues over the last couple of years, because so much of it is coming from COVID money and other stimulus related packages. There's no reason to believe that in the next three, four five years that revenues will match anywhere. The, the pile of money won't be this big again, right? The, it certainly won't be. It's already starting to kind of wind down. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a different question whether state revenues will stay as high, but the federal money will certainly be winding down. And, you know, allocating all this money for big projects, uh, you know, I-70, for example, you know, what happens if, uh, you know, you allocate this money, revenues go down, but, you know, MoDOT says, actually, this is going to cost way more money. Where, how are we going to finish that? How many other projects has the state started with this money that, you know, they didn't have a complete plan for how to finish them or how to do them in a good way. And so I, I think we do need to be worried about accountability. And I would like to see a little bit more focus on that in, uh, in the final few weeks of this session. Is it normal, and you can tell me if I missed something here, but is it normal for a governor of a state to be so hands-off during the budget process? I mean, he he gave his, his you know, state of the state address and outlines his priorities in the budget earlier in the year and then the the senate just kind of takes off from there it doesn't seem like we've heard a lot from the governor's office uh during this process and is that how it's supposed to be and he's just supposed to say no i gave you my priorities um you guys figure it out or do you are are other governors maybe more prone to being activists during this time well i think one thing is that it's very hard to really know exactly what the governor's top priority is even in this budget i mean they're he did lay out his recommendations back in uh, January. I do think there are plenty of governors you see across the country that have put you know more behind getting signature things put in the budget. That's not to say that you know the state's budget director and other people aren't being engaged with the House and the Senate on you know specific issues. But I mean, if you were to ask me what the top priority of the governor was in this budget, I wouldn't necessarily know. Maybe maybe I seventy. Um, but, you know, I, I certainly don't know what his opinion is of whether the state should be doing, you know, the Senate's proposal of three lanes across the state or, you know, the, the you know, this smaller proposal or, um, you know, some of the various other issues. And I think that is a problem. And I, you know, I, I think that um, once we get to signing the budget, that might be where we figure it out. But that might be too little too late. Another David, go ahead. Well, we can't we can't talk this much about I seventy and expanding it without saying at least very briefly that the proper way to do this is via toll roads and to toll I seventy. It doesn't look like we're going to do that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't. I almost brought that up, but I didn't want to catch you off guard. But now I'm realizing that uh, it's impossible to you're you're ready at a moment's notice anytime to talk about tolling. So, thank you, um, James. Another top line well, item. Why, why don't I get to weigh in on transportation? Listen. I want to say something about I-70. I don't know if it needs to be three lanes the whole way, but as a, a Wentzvillian, a Wentzville resident, uh, that eastbound... Bottleneck. Uh, that when you go, well, the bottleneck going west is terrible, but the eastbound uh, on-ramp from Wentzville, I nearly got killed this past weekend. Uh, we need to do something there. So maybe that should be the governor's top priority in terms of transportation. That's just my two cents. The governor's top priority should be James's commute. Exactly. No, that doesn't even mean a commute. That's just a. It's a. It's a one potential problem. I don't know if it needs to be three lanes the entire way, but there are certainly places in which they could use some attention. Sure, and I think that is an important point that. If the pile of money is not going to be, if we don't have reason to believe that it's going to be this big uh, in the years moving forward, there are actual projects that justify 
expansion and spending large amounts of money. And in the growing areas of uh, you know Columbia, St. St. Louis, Wentzville, uh, parts of Kansas City, there are infrastructure projects that need to be done. And to Elias's point earlier, the accountability and the oversight is is going to be really important there. So I don't think anyone is saying that there aren't projects that uh, deserve to be funded and some investments need to be made. And as a recent Floridian, Florida resident, I can tell you, David, the toll roads were very smooth. Oh, they're beautiful down there. They're beautiful. We've been to Florida several times lately. They're great. But before we move off the budget, James, what I I wanted to ask you about was another item that's always uh, on the top of the list is spending in education. And I didn't know if you had any broad takeaways from this session about how the conversation around the education um, budget has gone. You've, I mean, you've written a lot about the the actual numbers and what teachers are paid, and we have the we published a bunch of finance data earlier this year about what schools are actually spending and just i don't know how you feeling about uh education spending in missouri this session well i don't have a whole lot of thoughts on it to be honest with you uh education spending is is an interesting thing because when it comes to public education it's never enough that based on the public school advocates right so whatever you spend they want more if you if you fully fund the funding formula, that's still not enough. We need to increase it. We need more money every single time. I mean, even this year when we're going to be at, at record levels of spending, the public school advocates will continue to say that it's still not enough. And so that, to me, is just an, an interesting thing that happens with public education funding is that there are always groups, no matter how much you're spending – that will continue to argue that it's still not enough. Even when we're at you know, $15,000 per student. I mean, we have school districts in the St. Louis area spending $20,000 per pupil, and we still have people advocating that, that it's not enough. Um, so it's, it's one of those sort of weird, um, weird, I don't know how to describe it, weird systems where the advocates of it continually want more. I had someone attack me actually on Twitter this weekend because uh, I was not willing to pay a rural school teacher in five in uh, Kabul, Missouri, five hundred thousand dollars to teach computer science. That's true. I'm not willing to do that because resources are limited, and this is a key economic principle that we talk about here at the Show Me Institute. Whereas it, there are trade-offs, right? If you spend it in one area, you can't spend it in another, and and tax dollars come from somewhere. They come from taxpayers. And so when we choose to spend more money on roads or when we choose to spend more money on education, that's less dollars that families have. And we have to make decisions about these sorts of things. Um, so the education budget decision or discussion to me, um, I said at the beginning, I don't have a lot of thoughts on this, but uh, as I've just rambled here, you can tell I have a few. <laughs> and a, a shout out in the education funding issue to the representatives of Camdenton School District in the Lake of the Ozarks area for opposing the terrible Osage Beach $78 million tax subsidy. It wasn't most of it a TIF, and having their representatives vote against it last week and ask a lot of tough questions of the developer and the city during the hearing. The county officials also voted against it, but out there at least the TIF commissions are stacked for the city, so they still passed this terrible proposal. 
And uh, lastly, last before we move off the budget, so uh, it doesn't sound like you're too optimistic about where we are right now. We're recording this the last week of April. Next week, it'll be the first week of May. Where do we have to be, let's say, the end of next week in the process for you to feel better about uh, them getting this done in a timely manner? Well, I, I think the budget needs to be passed both chambers by the end of next week. So we we have this week, the Senate needs to uh, pass their version of the budget. Um, that'll probably take a day. It's a pretty long process. And then the budget will be going to the conference committee. So they will start working with the House uh, later this week, I would assume, and then have committee hearings next week. And then both the, uh, both the House and the Senate will need to pass the budget again. So there's a lot of steps that need to happen, a lot of um, negotiations, but there is a constitutional deadline. So they will need to get there by the end of next week. All right, David, another thing that is happening this time of year in the state of Missouri across the state, uh, property tax assessments. So people get an assessment on their house and what's different in your mind uh, this year than maybe normal years? I I think there is something different this year. So yes, right about now, April, May, sometimes early June, you'll be getting your reassessment notices for your property. I encourage you not to just toss that mail in the in the trash read it very carefully if you haven't gotten it yet feel free to go online to your county assessor's website because many of the assessments are already posted online there and check the value of your home Uh, the past two years we've seen a real increase in home values across the country and here in missouri and that's going to be reflected in the reassessment value you're getting here and don't think that you're going to be saved by the fact that in the last few months uh, at the end of 2022, home values started leveling off, and then the beginning of this year, they're declining. But they don't. They set these assessments based on January of 2023. So any decline you think is out there in March and April, you're not going to see that in your assessments. Why is this more important than ever? Because this is the first time since our modern reassessment system began in 1985 that we're reassessing in a period of high inflation. And that doesn't only reflect a part of the increase in housing values, but which I think was to an extent independent of that, but related of course. But also when local governments roll their rates back late summer, early fall to calculate their 2023 and 2024 property tax rates, they can include that high inflation of the past two years in that calculation. So what I fear is that people are going to see large assessment increases on their homes and very small tax rate decreases or rollbacks uh, this year. So I think people are going to get a double whammy and people really need to be paying attention, uh, challenging your assessment at the local level if you feel that's a good thing to do and working with your local officials, school boards, county co- county commissions, city councils, whatever, to, to encourage them to roll back those rates this fall, even more so than they may be required to. And I, I feel that when people... I feel we're going to have a big assessment hit around the state this year, similar to 2001 in St. Louis County, 2019 in Jackson County. We might see something like that statewide this year. It's very interesting, and all you can do is pay close attention to try to protect yourself. So there's the formal appeal process, but then you were talking about that some counties, some cities have an informal appeal process. So can you walk people through that? I found that useful. In St. Louis County, there's a two there's a two tiered system. There's the initial informal appeal process that anybody can do, any any property owner can do, and that's a much simpler appeal process. You don't need a whole lot of information. Just bring some comparable sales, some information on your house, uh, especially 
Find out what they compared your house to. That's all online, and it's in the letters you'll be getting from the assessor. Check those homes out, but also find other ones in your area that you think may be better comparisons to your house. And go in and, and do this. It's not that complicated a process, nor is it all that time-consuming of a process. Now, that's in St. Louis County. The, the rest of the state, you have to do the formal appeals pro- after the informal appeals process in St. Louis County, if you don't like your result, you can then go through the formal appeals process, which is what you do in the rest of Missouri as well. But don't be scared of that formal appeals process either. That too is not some incredibly complex legal thing you have to go through. That's fairly simple too. Average people can do this on their own. But yes, in St. Louis County, it's even a little bit easier. Well, and am I wrong, maybe naive, to think that the this system requires people to appeal assessments that are too high? I mean, this is not just um, this is not is a is a feature, not a bug. I think the saying is that this system only works if people raise their hand and say, "I think you got this wrong." So, absolutely, if you've got an error in your assessment, if they've got you with, you know, f- finished basement and it's not finished, if they've got you with a deck and you don't have a deck, look look for errors, look for and when they're comparing you to other properties, if those homes all have new kitchens and new bathrooms and your kitchen is old and hasn't been done in 30, 40 years, you can point these things out. And, and there's plenty of information available online on tips and hints in how to, how to do this. It's not too complicated. I've done it before with at least some success. And the, the informal process in St. Louis County is very good. And frankly, the formal process in other counties is, I think, fair to taxpayers as well. Sure. And uh, at the end of last year, you were talking about this with personal property, and that came to pass. I mean, we were talking about it uh, on podcasts in uh, late November, December. People were getting their bills for their cars, and there was a lot of sticker shock. We were we were right on a lot of that, so so I'll be selling my Super Bowl picks for a hundred dollars to anybody. And we'll wait closer to the next football season to get my you, you too can get my online sports predictions. But but that's a separate podcast. Subscribers only. Um, all right, James. So uh, we spoke a little bit about money and education. Now I want to talk about policy and education across the country. This has been a very active session. Iowa, Arkansas, Florida, Arizona, a bunch of different states have expanded ESAs, expanded school choice. Missouri hasn't done a whole lot. So um, again, as we come to the end of the session, how do you feel about the legislation that's being discussed right now and where we're at in that process? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to say, uh, you know, all my friends are doing it. We should do it, too. But it's a little bit like that. I mean, we say we're the show me state. Well, other states continually show us over and over and over again. Numerous states have passed universal ESA programs. States are expanding all sorts of uh, school choice programs. And we're debating relatively small changes, relatively small programs. Two of the programs we're watching closely, there's HB 253, which is a student transfer bill, which would allow students to open, or would allow for open enrollment. Students in one public school district could go to another public school district and not have to pay tuition when they do it, right? This is in place in lots of other states. They've been doing it for years, for decades in lots of other places. Uh, And it's relatively uncontroversial. And yet in Missouri, we're still fighting over it. It's passed through the House. Um, it, it now could go to the full Senate. We're hoping that it could go this the, uh, as early as this next week, but it, but it may not uh, maybe get pushed to omnibus discussions. We're also looking at HB 350, which is an expansion of the Missouri Empowerment Scholarship Program, which passed in recent years. 
That would simply add a little bit of additional funding for students that have special needs, students that are qualifying for free reduced price lunches or students with limited English proficiency. Um, and it would also remove a cap on the program. So these two things are relatively small, They're especially in comparison to what other states are doing. And yet Missouri is still taking um, uh, a really long look at what everyone else is doing to decide what they want to do. And I think part of it goes back to um, maybe what Elias was saying about the governor before. There doesn't seem to be strong leadership up top for school choice proposals. And I think that reflects here. Yeah. And I'm glad you made that point about it not being a moonshot here, what we're talking about. These are policies that are uh, not only are in effect in other states, but in some cases have been in effect for decades. You look at Wisconsin, some of the Florida bills that have passed uh, over the last few decades. Um, this isn't exactly crazy experimental legislation we're talking about. Right. I, I had a, a coffee with a retired superintendent not long ago talking about open enrollment. And, and he said, most of us aren't that opposed to it because a lot of superintendents have worked in other states where they have open enrollment. And many of our school districts we know would benefit from it because we would get students from other school districts. But yet the the public school establishment really walks in lockstep opposed to this. A lot of the rural lawmakers are questioning open enrollment. And so we don't have the support on this. But again, this is something in other states that is relatively non-controversial. This is a public school choice bill, right? From one public school district to another public school district, we're not talking about private school choice with that bill. And yet, it's still taking a lot of effort to get it across the finish line. And the Empowerment Scholarship Program is simply a small expansion of the program that is nothing radical, right? And it's especially when we compare it to what other states are doing, where they're, we're basically creating universal school choice programs other places. And, and we're just still uh, packing away little by little trying to expand these programs. I hope they do it. I hope that in the next few weeks we see some movement uh, and, and we get these things across the finish line. But I, I'd love to see something more in the future. Sure. So I think it's safe to say that right now there's momentum behind this kind of stuff. Uh, ESA is in school choice uh, expansion. Um, in your career watching education policy, how important is momentum? Like, does, mm. is, it, is it striking why the iron's hot? Has that been important? Well, momentum's huge. And when I first came to the Show Me Institute about a decade ago, I remember going to testify in Jefferson City, and it would usually be me in favor of the school choice bills and a bunch of education lobbyists against them. And over time, that has changed. I remember a few years ago, Mike McShane, who also was a, a director of education policy here, he and I went to testify on a bill, and we didn't get the opportunity to testify because so many parents were there testifying in favor. And, and Mike has written about that and said he recalls that as the moment when he knew we were going to win. In the long run, we're going to win because things are changing. Parents are, are getting active. People are demanding for school choice. We're seeing it nationwide. This is a growing movement. Uh, and I think the momentum is hugely influential. We've seen that in other places. We've seen it impact uh, governor's races in other places. So this is definitely a movement that is growing. And I think it is uh, leading to changes other places. We're just a little bit uh, slow in the uptick. I think that's a very kind way. To put it. Um, all right. Well, so there's a lot of legislation to keep an eye on, and I know that you'll uh, 
you'll be keeping track of that. Um, David, you want to talk about a uh, um, city just outside of Kansas City. You've got a blog on it up today at showmeinstitute.org, and they're doing one of uh, your favorite things. They're going to privatize utility. They're, they're considering privatizing the, the independent electrical utility. It's still early in the process. Uh, there's certainly no guarantees, nor nor should they be. If they, if they don't get if they go through a process, excuse me, and don't get some really good bids that are worth the, the value of it, then they shouldn't do it. But yes, Independence, Missouri, you know, a suburb of Kansas City, also known as, you know, the birthplace place and home of Harry Truman, and also the fifth largest city in the state of Missouri, which a lot of people may not realize. So they're one of the largest cities in Missouri with their own electrical utility. St. Louis doesn't have a municipal electrical utility. Kansas City doesn't have a municipal electric utility. Springfield and Columbia do. But independence now, as you know, as, as governments, as managing utilities becomes harder and harder and more expensive and more expensive, gets more difficult for a, a small city like independence to, uh, to do this. Sure, they got 100,000 people, but it's still hard to run a municipal utility. And they're looking at privatizing it uh, and opening up bids for the, the private sector to come in and take it over. It would be worth an enormous amount of money. I don't want to give a guess here so far uh, as to what an electrical utility like that would be worth. Uh, well into the tens of millions of dollars, probably probably more, much more than that, actually. Uh, Eureka, Missouri sold their, privatized their water and sewer system to Missouri American Water a couple of years ago, and that was for, I think, I want to say 14 or 15 million dollars in that range. Independence is a much, much, much larger city than, than a Eureka. So I think it's great that Independence is considering it. I think it's exciting and I very much hope that it works through. But they shouldn't do it. They shouldn't do it because they feel like they're forced to. If they don't get a good bid, they should hold back and start again in a couple of years. But I do think with the large electrical companies, uh, investor-owned utilities in Missouri, I think they'll get a good bid, and I hope it happens. That That is what I was going to ask you, that you're not just a privatize uh, at any means necessary. Kind of there, there are situations where cities municipalities look at it and it's just not not the right fit at the at the right time right right there's the small town of silex in lincoln county a little north of st louis and they've had numerous numerous troubles with their with their sewer and water systems for for years it's a very small town there's no reason for them to have a sewer and water system they should privatize that to to a private company to operate that facility they cannot afford to to run it uh, independence is not in that desperate of a situation. And no, they should do this because it's the smart long-term move for them and the right thing for their taxpayers and their, their citizens. But yes, if they don't get the good, a good bid on it, they should, they should not do it. But I'm confident that they will get a, a very good bid if they, as they go through this process. All right, let's take a look at uh, what everyone's keeping tabs on over the next week. Elias, we will start with you. Well, all eyes are on the Senate, uh, besides tracking the budget, uh, need to see some sort of movement on uh, some tax cuts, or at least hopeful movement on some tax cuts. So the House has already passed one tax cut bill, I think we talked about before, lowering the individual income tax and the corporate income tax. There is another bill moving in the House for lowering taxes, but the Senate needs to take some movement on these. The tax cut bill that was passed by the house still hasn't received a hearing in the senate so the senate needs to pass the budget and uh hopefully 
pass some tax cuts or at least get some movement there. And hopefully in the next week, we'll see something because there, as I mentioned earlier, there's not much time left. And James? Well, the two, two, the two school choice bills that I mentioned, of course, are the things that we're paying attention to the most. Hopefully, the open enrollment bill gets taken up by and voted on by the full Senate. Um, I, it could be pushed into an omnibus bill. Both of these bills could into an education omnibus bill. I hope they get something moving very soon. And David? Two things. First of all, the two St. Louis County municipalities of, of Normandy and Glen Echo Park are considering merging. Glen Echo Park is one of the smallest municipalities in St. Louis County, and that's saying something, because we have a lot of small municipalities. But I think this is a, a terrific I- idea. We've submitted comments in the public comment forum available at showmeinstitute.org to the Boundary Commission of St. Louis County on the subject. I think this is a really smart move. Normandy is sort of more of a mid-sized city in the county, but it already surrounds Glenico Park on three sides. Glenico Park is so small, it's having trouble keeping up with services. So to merge with Normandy, I think is a great idea. And it's really the type of bottom-up, citizen-driven, local community-driven type of municipal change that we need to see more of in St. Louis County and throughout Missouri. And then the second thing, Tarum, Ripum, Vinci, land banks must be defeated. The terrible, awful, no good, very bad, Judy Bloomish land bank bill is that's not it wasn't a Judy Bloom book that was a that was someone else but anyway the land bank bill that passed the house unfortunately is being heard in Senate committee hearing to- tomorrow Tuesday uh, very much hope it's defeated in committee uh, this we just had three St Louis aldermen go to prison for corruption charges in part related to land banks the Kansas City Star has documented thoroughly corruption, I should say favoritism and cronyism in Kansas City related to the land bank. So why would we not want to bring land banks to the rest of Missouri and authorize them anywhere? This is truly a terrible, terrible, almost galling idea to do it at this time. And uh, it's, it must be stopped. It's just got to be stopped in the Senate because it would be terrible policy for our state. Just to clarify, it's Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day by Judith Viorst. Judy, <laughs> Judith, so close, so close. Uh, I'm confusing it with super fudge. As always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. If you're in the St. Louis or Kansas City area, we've got an event with Jay Norlinger from National Review Institute. Uh, On May 9th, he's going to be in St. Louis. And on May 10th, he's going to be at Kansas City. It's a free event, so go to showmeinstitute.org slash events, all the details, and you can register there. Elias, James, David, thank you very much. Thank you.